This episode of a sassy little podcast for getting over it is proudly sponsored by Rooted Planning Group, a woman-owned and managed business. We've learned the value of our physical and emotional health. This year, let's invest in our financial health. No matter which stage in life you're at, Rooted Planning Group is ready to help you achieve your dreams. Learn how financial planning can help you grow at rootedpg.com. Welcome to a sassy little podcast for getting over it. I'm your host, Sandra Ann Miller. Today we're talking about getting the F over being monolingual and reclaiming a heritage language because it's important to embrace our native cultures and keep them vibrant in our lives. Our guest is a Calgary based writer, educator, and language scientist who has taught linguistics and psychology at Brown University and the University of Calgary. Along with authoring a textbook on the fast-growing field of psycholinguistics, she co-wrote Sold on Language, How Advertisers Talk to You and What This Says About You. Her new book, Memory Speaks, on losing and reclaiming language and self, will be released by Harvard University Press in the fall of this year. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Julie Sedevi. Thank you so much for having me, Sandra. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. I'm really interested in, in the topic that you brought up, which is how we lose our heritage language. And I say we as if I had one, because <laughs> I'm, you know, an American mutt mix with um, my grandfather, my mother's father's side is Irish, and my father's mother's side is English. So basically, my only hope of a second language would be like pub slang or, you know, considering I grew up in Los Angeles, Valley Girl, but I am fluent in sarcasm. So aside from that, it's I can order beer in multiple languages, ask for the bathroom and uh, say no cheese. And that's well, about that's it. a start. It's a start. a start. <laughs> <laughs> but you started with many languages. Do you want to share a little bit about that? I did. Uh, I had a rather itinerant childhood. So uh, I was born in uh, the former Czechoslovakia in the area that's now the Czech Republic. And when I was just under two years old, my family fled the country, actually. And uh, then we rattled around um, Europe for a couple of years, living in Austria and Italy. So um, very early on, I picked up Czech, which was my mother tongue. But then I you know, went to a preschool in Vienna where I learned German and lived in Italy for a while. Then eventually uh, our family made their way over to Montreal in Quebec. Um, and the first language that I was exposed to there was French, which I learned from the children on the streets. And uh, then eventually learned English in kindergarten. So English was the fifth language that I was exposed to. But that Holy doesn't cow. mean that I still have all of these languages, unfortunately. Which languages do you have? Because I barely English. have English right now. <laughs> I, think, I think you have English very superbly. Um, well, English very quickly became the dominant language. Um, and I think within a space of two or three years really shoved all the others aside. So it's now the only language in which I feel competent as a writer. I can journal in French. Um, I'm barely literate in Czech. Um, Italian and German, mm, you know, I need the subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> I need the subtitles, and I certainly can't carry on a conversation. 
Right. I was on track, according to my French teacher in high school, to be fluent in French. But when mm. it came to junior year, French 3 was at the same time as chorus, and I decided I wanted to have some fun and took chorus. And of course, my French went out the window, unless I have a copious amount of wine, mm. and then I sort of think <laughs> that I have the language back. Um, I don't think any French person would agree with me. But it always was a fantasy of mine to be multilingual. And that's about as far as I got. And then when my super ex-boyfriend and I were flirting with the idea of of marriage and having a family, back when I thought I wanted to have kids, he was fluent in Hungarian, you know, spoke it, mm -hmm. read it, both he and his sister, his parents, um, well, he was first generation, and his father was literally off the boat from the Hungarian Revolution. And that was mm -hmm. such a harrowing story that he told hilariously, but I mean, <laughs> just incredible. And because of that, it was really important to me that our theoretical children would have that second right. language and that culture and to be as fluent as he was. And there was no way in hell a language would be spoken in my house that I didn't understand. So I was going to take on Hungarian, right. which, which is not an easy language no, for most not. English speakers. It's yeah. crazy. I forget, like, there's like some weird amount of vowels and like super long alphabet. It's just, it's crazy. <laughs> and from what I understand, the only related language to Hungarian is Finnish. And I believe Finnish the, is closely related. And I think, well, I was told that the only reason why they're kind of related is because there's no other languages that are related to them. <laughs> I could be wrong. Uh, I think there are a couple, but those are the big ones. And uh, they certainly are very distant from most of the other languages around them. So Hungarian is not a Slavic language. It doesn't resemble Polish or Czech or Bulgarian or anything nearby. And it certainly would be, you know, for, very foreign sounding to any speaker of a Germanic language like English. Mm -hmm. Well, we got as far as three. Um, and, and, as and counting and, three. Counting to three. He, he, wasn't okay. the, he wasn't the best or most patient teacher. So I said, <laughs> look, if we do get married, then I will hire somebody to teach me Hungarian. Because I think for mm -hmm. our sanity and the health of our relationship, we just shouldn't do it together. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, what would have done it was spending a year in Hungary. That right. would have been one approach. Right. Yeah. Well, it was wonderful, though, that you were such a supportive partner. And it, in a way, it's too bad you didn't have those theoretical children because <laughs> the reality is that for many such children, um, if a parent marries someone who's not a native speaker of their mother tongue, the odds of passing that language on are very, very, very low. Mm -hmm. And it is so important because it, it is such a big part of who we are as people, it how is. we speak, and and the language we share. And I think even in families, you have certain lingo, you know, as far as whether it's just yeah. within your family or your culture of that town or city that you're in. Yeah, and I think as someone who grew up in North America and then, you know, began to really lose touch with um, my mother tongue effectively, my Czech really deteriorated very quickly after I began school. Um, and I did not have access to the Czech culture, hmm. which meant that for me, the Czech language and Czech heritage was really something that was confined to our family. You know, it became a very small thing. Right. As opposed to this huge context that, you know, you originate from. And I remember how moved I was the first time I went back to 
uh, the Czech Republic. This was uh, in my 30s. I remember the experience. I, I traveled by train from uh, Vienna to Prague. And as the train pulled into the station, I heard the announcements in Czech. And I had this very strange feeling as if one of my brothers had somehow, you know, as a practical joke, run up and grabbed the microphone and started speaking into it. Because to me, it felt like this was not the place where you hear Czech. Mm. Czech was not a public language. Right. Czech was our private family language. And effectively, I never heard it outside of that context, uh, particularly since I grew up before the days of the internet, where you could easily you know, plug in and get access to Czech TV shows and whatnot and news programs. Um, so unless you are able to speak that language, you're really kind of cut off from that whole culture that shaped your family's traits, that therefore shaped your traits. You mm -hmm. don't really know why you are the way you are um, until you go back to that country and you suddenly the lights go on and you realize like, oh, this is my father's sense of humor. It came from somewhere. Right. It, it didn't just spring whole from him. Um, and that was really a revelation for me. And I think it's the kind of thing that you lose if you no longer have contact with that language, which is your doorway to the culture. Yes. And I think, you know, for our generation and the generation before, assimilation was so important that yes. some families actually forbade the yes. heritage language from being spoken, you're going to speak English if, if you're in North America. That's right. Um, or the U.S. And, and Canada. And and holding on to that, the assimilation was so important. And I know that that's changed a bit, thank goodness. But I know growing up, um, you know, there would be some families where the mother or the grandmother wouldn't want to come to the door because they were embarrassed because they didn't speak English. That's right. As opposed to yeah. trying to communicate together. And again, this is before the internet and you can Google translate things. But yeah, there, was, there seemed to be like a shame of having a second language. Yeah, absolutely. And this is such a great tragedy. And there were many, many families where uh, the teachers, in the interests of speeding up the child's acquisition of English, would tell the parents that it was in the child's interest for the parents to speak English at home, regardless of how badly they spoke English at home. We now know from um, studies of language learning that this is um, not really a productive strategy, that um, this doesn't actually accelerate the child's learning of English, um, largely for the reason that uh, many of these parents don't speak a good enough English to really benefit their kids. So really, uh, the best way to speed up that child's learning process would be to engage them in very language-rich activities in English while speaking the language that the parents control the best mm -hmm. because there's some crossover of learning between languages, as a matter of fact. If you learn to read and become literate in one language, well, that actually gives you some skills that you can then use in your academics in English. So it was both unproductive but also really tragic because what it meant is that it encouraged this environment where there was a huge language barrier between children and parents at home, which, of course, impedes their ability to be parents effectively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you, if you think about it for a minute and imagine an English-speaking family, you know, and you instruct the parents, okay, from now on, you, you're going to have to parent in the high school French that you learned and abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how that goes, you know. How many intimate conversations can you have with your right. kids about what, what they're going through at school, and how many life lessons can you impart, and how many of your memories can you naturally share. 
So it's really just putting a block in that relationship between parents and children and often grandparents and children. Mm -hmm. So things are shifting somewhat. I think there's still very much, it's certainly not at the point where we acknowledge the value of heritage languages. And I still have found myself in so many situations where I'm in public and there's a family and they're speaking their heritage language amongst themselves and someone mutters within earshot, why can't they speak English? Yes. So those attitudes, I think, are still out there. Um, there are still studies that show that uh, young children will, uh, given the choice, not socialize with someone of another language or even someone who speaks English with an accent, or even a child who is bilingual, even if they speak English perfectly, if there's evidence that that child speaks another language, kids' tendencies to kind of shy away from that and to perceive that as a difference and be wary of it. That's um, so disappointing. So it's still, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it, I think it's still very much part of our culture. We have not by any means become comfortable with a pervasive multilingualism. We still have a ways to go there. Very much a ways to go. Because to me, it's, it's of course, another form of learning. It just makes you wiser and more intelligent and I think once you start one, my theory is you have a better ability to learn another. You just kind of crack open that part of your brain. That's actually true, yes. There are some documented studies that show that learning an additional language makes it easier to learn the next language and so on. And certain other skills have also been associated with multilingualism. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, um, even just the ability to be aware of language and to reason about language and to be able to negotiate interactions uh, with people who are not necessarily completely fluent in English, all of this gets enhanced if you have experienced in multiple languages. You kind of extend your communicative repertoire uh, in a way that I think is really productive. Yes. So these are things that we're missing out on if, you know, if we insist on a very strict monolingual English environment. Well, then how is it up in Canada? Because I know at least there's English and French. So that varies tremendously by region. So in Quebec, the dominant language is French. And that has actually been in part due to the maintenance of language laws that really promote French. Hmm. Uh, so since the 1970s, uh, French has been the official language of the workplace. It's been required that you have availability of French in medical services and you know all of, a variety of different businesses. So essentially, it's now a disadvantage in Quebec to not speak French. You are economically disadvantaged, which sort of reversed the situation that had been in place until the 1970s, where there were big wage gaps between English speakers who earned a lot more than French speakers, mm -hmm. even though French-speaking people were in the majority. So I think the presence of those language laws has really stabilized French as the dominant language in Quebec. But um, in Montreal, it's a, a, an extremely bilingual and multilingual city. So it's probably North America's most multilingual city. There are many immigrants who come into Montreal and they, for the most part, learn not only French, but also English. So Montreal has the largest trilingual population in North America. But if you go to other parts of Canada, um, the situation there can look very much like most of the U.S. Mm -hmm. So if you go into Ontario or British Columbia or many of the prairie provinces, yes, you have immigrant languages coming in and becoming part of the mix. 
it is possible as a parent to always find French immersion schools because that is held up as an official language. But daily life really does not contain much French. Mm. Where I live in Calgary, I rarely hear French spoken on the streets. I'm much more likely to hear Arabic or Urdu or you know many other languages, uh, Russian, than I am to hear French. Wow. So there are, there are real regional differences, and it's certainly not the case that every Canadian is bilingual. Right. And even in Los Angeles, we're not even bilingual here. And you would think with That's such right. a prevalence of Spanish that it would be mm-hmm. much more common. And again, I'm not a parent. I'm not in the school system, so possibly there's a little bit more of that happening. But you would think if there was ever a, a state, right, Texas, Arizona, right any of the border states, that that there would be a bit more welcoming of the bilingualism. But of course, we're American, and that's just not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, there's an unfortunate feeling of threat, and of um, there's a greater perception that Spanish is taking over than is the reality. So even in a city like Miami, which has a very long-standing population of Cuban immigrants who came and established themselves and became economically very successful. So Miami is possibly the city in the U.S. that has the most business activity going on in Spanish. Mm -hmm. There's a fear that many English speakers have that it's, you know, it's going to become impossible to live in Miami if you don't speak Spanish. But the -the on-the-ground reality is, is shockingly different. So I just read a study that looked at the language habits of young people, teenagers who are bilingual, who speak both English and Spanish. And what they found is that these teenagers tended to lean towards English more than Spanish. So given the choice, if you're a bilingual speaker speaking to someone else who's also bilingual, chances are good that you're going to converge on English rather Mm. than Spanish. So there's sort of a subtle magnetism. Yes, many people in Miami are bilingual, And if they encounter someone who only speaks Spanish, they can deploy that language. But if they're in a situation with another bilingual, English somehow has this pull. It tends to be the default language. Hmm. So I don't think we're anywhere close to Spanish overtaking English as a dominant (laughs) language, even in those very, very thickly Spanish-speaking areas. Right. Well, and I only laughed because, again... It's not like we have a huge grasp of the English language here in America, considering now that literally doesn't even mean literally anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I don't know. I think language usage is constantly shifting. So I'm one of these linguists who's very non-prescriptive and kind of (laughs) I take a very Zen approach to language. And I say, you know, English is what English speakers do these days. And that may not be what English speakers did 40 years ago, but it's what they do now. Well, even there's a Starburst commercial where they say unexplainably. I'm like, it's inexplicable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I chalk these up to dialectal differences and generational differences. I, you're very kind. I, I put it towards just dumbing it down rather than trying to raise mm. everybody up. Yeah, I won't go on a rant about that, but it's, you know. (laughs) That's another show. (laughs) It's just, exactly. It's, I think it should be honored in a way, you know, just. The English language, you mean? Any language. Any language. But it's, I mean, considering it's the only one I really have, and again, that can be challenged. Mm. There's something to honor and at least understand it before you break it. So this is a very interesting perspective, and I think it speaks to the fact that uh, North American culture on the whole 
doesn't value the past very much. Right. Right. So we're all about the present and throwing ourselves into the future, into the bright, glorious future. But when you look at, for example, the um, attitude that many indigenous communities have towards their language, mm-hmm. they're very concerned with maintaining a continuity. Now, in actual fact, they've had a real rupture in continuity because there have been very systematic attempts to actually exterminate those languages. Right. Uh, but there's a sense of commitment that we're going to be vigilant so that the language doesn't change to be unrecognizable to our elders. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with uh, a woman who spoke the Plinchon language, which is spoken in the Northwest Territories of Canada. And as is the case with many indigenous languages, you often have to coin new words for concepts that weren't around. So, you know, the internet, or uh, in this case, she was talking about um, how they would figure out how to describe in their language um, the word for AIDS, the disease. Yeah. So rather than just importing the English word, as many languages do, we just borrow each other's words and call it a day. Mm-hmm. They uh, created a new word that translated roughly to um, disease without a cure. Wow. And that was their term for that particular illness. But it was very important for the community, and they consulted with the elders on what would be an appropriate word. Today's young people in English really do not consult with the elders. Nobody <laughs> asked you, Sandra, how you feel about unexplainably or literally. <laughs> or the multiple so ways to spell woe. Exactly. That's right. And I think that says something more broadly about how we treat our elders. Mm. Yes. And I think, you know, Speaking as an American in America, everything's very disposable. That's right. And so why bother? If we don't like it, change it, ignore it, make something else up, it's fine. But again, it's to me, it's a little bit of dumbing down. And especially Mm -hmm. when you have the internet in your pocket, in your hand all the time, you can look it up. You can get curious about words. Where did they come from? You know, what does it really mean? How, how has the meaning changed? Especially with English, because it's how many theirs are there? You know, it just it, when you start going down that road, it can... But so let me, let me play devil's advocate sure. here. Sure. And, and uh, take the position that I think many linguists would, which is that it's not necessarily a deterioration of the language. It's simply a shift in a different direction, and mm-hmm. we've been doing this since Shakespeare's time. Right, so, right. So I would say that, hold on, if you really, really want to honor Shakespeare, for example, then you would not be so upset about how uh, people spell words, because in Shakespeare's time, there was no standardized spelling. And Shakespeare himself spelled the same word in multiple different ways, as you can read from the, uh, the transcripts of his plays. Simply because that wasn't a concept. There wasn't a gatekeeper and editing, you know, that wasn't seen as an authority. So that's a shift. We've moved away from that kind of loose approach mm-hmm. to spelling. You spell it how it sounds and we can figure it out. <laughs> um, then we move to a much more uh, standardized kind of approach to spelling. And now we're back to Shakespeare. You know, it's, exactly. Do we want to say that Shakespeare's language is a, is a lesser form of the standardized version we speak now? I suspect people might be reluctant to, to right. make that argument. Right. Yeah. But it, I think the the comfort that we have with the changes, well, or at least the the degree of the rate of innovations that's happening, probably does speak to the sense that we value innovation more than we value 
preservation and continuity. Right. And that's, I don't know, in a sense, that's reflected in our, you know, to the extent that our languages reflect our cultures, maybe it's fitting that English and its rapidity of change reflects that cultural attitude. Again, I'm Zen about this. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say that's, that's so nice. But I still gets pissed off at the at the Starburst ad. <laughs> it's been running for years. It's like, oh. But yeah, and it's, you know, it's not like I don't like speak poorly or or do grammaticals when I write completely flawed. But it's the wanting to, I suppose. Because to me, language mm. is important. And Okay. Even so, too, it's an expression of the value that you hold language. Yeah, I think it's it's great, and even when it's even when it's slang, even when it's you know kind of made up, even when you're just you know having fun with it, it's it's a wonderful thing. But I still think it it needs to be revered, especially if it's your first language or you have the opportunity to bring in a second language. I think it's it's an important thing to have and to have more of rather than less than. So I'm going to say something a little provocative. Do it. Because this has been part of my experience. Um, and that is that I think that reverence can actually get in the way of preserving a heritage language. Sure. And here's how that works. That works because multilingualism, if you're multilingual, you are going to be confronted with an imperfect command of all of your languages. Right. You're going to have certain skills in some languages and be lacking skills in that language. So you basically create a division of labor. No multilingual or bilingual person holds in their heads two languages that can do all of the work of a language in the world. So if you speak Spanish and English, you might use Spanish more at home and with your friends and in a social context. You might use English in a business context. It might be hard for you to do a business presentation in Spanish. You don't really have all of the vocabulary or the conventions of how a business presentation goes in Spanish. So even though you might consider yourself completely bilingual, your some skills are stronger in one language than another. And if you're someone who, like me, is struggling to maintain a language that uh, is constantly being eroded by the dominance of English, you're going to be making mistakes. Mm -hmm. When I go back to visit my relatives in the Czech Republic, I have the sense that they think that I'm either stupid or a terrible speaker sometimes, and I make many errors that small children would not. And I feel that sometimes there's a lack of understanding of the realities of me as a person struggling to be multilingual that often makes me inhibited. Sure. Keeps me, it makes me embarrassed to speak Czech because I'm aware that I don't speak it perfectly. So... This is something that I've also encountered in indigenous communities where elders um, are often upset when they hear young people who were cut off from their languages are now trying to relearn them as adolescents or young adults who don't have the benefit of having been immersed in them as young children and babies. Mm -hmm. So we know biologically that their language learning trajectory is going to look very different. Many elders see this as a deterioration of the language, a threat to the language, because um, they're not using it the way that that language has been used in the past. I can understand those feelings, but at the same time, as someone who's faced them myself, I know that this is not a way to encourage young people and you know children to really embrace their heritage languages. It's going to make them feel awkward about speaking them. Right. So it's a little bit of a dilemma 
reverence for the language, absolutely, but tempered with a realism of what it is to be a multilingual person. Sure. And particularly what it is to be someone who is approaching a language not continuously from birth on. Right. And that's one thing when, when somebody who's speaking to me and they're in English is their second or third or fifth language, they'll be very apologetic. And usually without needing to, they'll say, I'm really sorry, my English isn't that good. I'm like, it's better than mm-hmm. mine. <laughs> like you're using like really great words. You're using words I haven't used in years because they're taught in a different way. And so to me, I would always encourage people to try the English, not like I'm some saint, but, you know, go ahead and try and then we'll adjust or correct in a fun way because Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know how to approach English. I think it's a crazy language, but it's all I've got and you're trying and you're way ahead of me because this is your second language or your third or your fifth. And I'm impressed. So you wouldn't do it to a three-year-old. You wouldn't do it to anybody right. who's new to the language. You would just want to encourage them and point them in the right direction, but not without, not with criticism because, my God, again, can barely speak English myself most days. So it's right. why would we be critical of somebody else who's trying? And that's the thing with, you know, the French can be kind of harsh with their language. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, France is very keen on preserving the status of French globally mm-hmm. as, you know, one of the world's great languages. But the attitudes of many French people really dissuade that, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's a very different feeling than you get in Montreal. So that's an example of a city that is used to being bilingual and is very, very tolerant of people coming with whatever skills they happen to have. Mm -hmm. And you sort of patch together some form of communication, the best you can manage between the the languages that you share. And I find this to be such a warm experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I I remember going to a medical office and presenting the nurse with a form and she was francophone, she's French speaking, but she carried the conversation on in English because I was with an English speaking family member. And there was a word that she didn't understand on the form, the word to void. So I had to explain that that meant to urinate. And, you know, far from being embarrassed that she, a medical professional, didn't know the word in English for this, she just said, ha, huh, great, you learn something every day. You know, and it was just this, this attitude of, okay, we're going to add that now to my English stash. And it's all good. So I think, you know, if we aspire to be a multilingual culture, the reality is that we're going to have to be really, really comfortable around mm-hmm. people who use the language in ways that maybe we consider not entirely correct. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I shared a funny story with you that my friend was married to a woman from Montreal, and he had taken French and was semi-fluent yeah. in French, and she spoke French, and he was told by a friend in France that what they speak in Canada is not French. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is not standard Francy French, <laughs> but that's a rather narrow view of French. God bless the French, but yeah, it's on brand right there. I was taught by my French teacher, just try. As long as you try, that that's what they're hoping for. That's, that's at least what they're hoping for, is some effort to their language. Yes. And not just this, 
idea that you can come to France and not speak a lick of it and expect to get away mm -hmm. with it. They want some effort. So if you are ever in, in Paris and you're interacting with someone who exudes disapproval at the way you're using French, just imagine in place a friendly Montrealer who exactly. is willing to go with the flow. <laughs> well, and I don't enter any country where I don't know some swear words. So I also have that just in oh, case. <laughs> that is very, very smart. <laughs> Speaking of which, so here's another example of disconnection from your heritage language. I do not know how to swear in Czech. Ah. So this is a function of Czech being, for me, a private family language. Mm -hmm. And I was raised in the sort of family where the parents never, ever, ever swore. Amazing. So sure, I can look up a few swear words on the internet, but swearing goes deeper than that, right? You yes. have to know the gradations of swearing. You have to know... Which words are more expressive than others and which are going to make your grandmother's jaw drop in horror, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I do not have these intuitions. They, and it, it makes me feel like a tourist to my language because it makes me feel like I'm missing something incredibly intimate about my mother tongue. Right, right. Well, not only do you want to use it properly, you absolutely want to know when it's coming at you. That's the other thing. Exactly. I was standing at a bus stop, um, and there were some, you know, middle school kids in my presence throwing around what I knew were some swear words, but I didn't know what it meant for them to be saying them in my presence. Mm -hmm. Like, how offended should I be? <laughs> you know, should I be saying something? You know, <laughs> did they perceive me as as somehow stupid or not worthy of respect if I didn't shush them, or was this normal behavior for middle schoolers? I had no way of knowing. I you know, it, and, but that's a big part of communication and culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's not just the vocabulary and grammar. It's how you how to use language and how do you use it in different social situations mm -hmm. and what does it mean? Well, and I think it's important to embrace language. And I know I, I love my people, but Americans can be challenging. Let's just let's just say it. <laughs> We're not the best travelers. And another bit of advice from my beloved French teacher is when you go abroad, just say you're from California. Ah, why is that? Because especially in France, they love California. And or at least they did then. And so okay. you say you're from California. Only say it if it's true, people. But that that's a little less of an offense, I guess, than saying you're an American. It's it's a little bit uh, I don't want to say cooler, but we might be perceived as more laid back. All right. And uh, and then I'll take your word for that yeah. one. I have construction noises going on, I believe. Mm. So that's I'll, I'll, I'll edit that part out. So when I travel, you know, I try to be learning of the language and the culture. And it's not like I'm super that well-traveled. I've gone to British Columbia. That was interesting. Wait, wait, See, wait. They mostly speak English there. No, I know you, that. But it was, you... like, it, it was like English English. It was the Canadian pound. And the queen came on the telly on Christmas <laughs> Day. And I was, I was like, you know, y'all are free, right? You know, she doesn't lord over you anymore. It was just shocking. I think most Canadians know that, Sandra. <laughs> I know, but I'm like, why is she? She doesn't come on our TV. No, she doesn't. Uh, but it's entirely symbolic. And I think Americans overestimate the role that the royalty plays in our, our lives. Oh, yeah. No, I, I thought it was humorous, but it was just, it was very, very British. And, you know. Oh, my goodness. Don't let. The Canadians hear you say that. <laughs> I, well, well, I, but I, at least the family I was with was very into that. And they were very proud of it. But again, it was the Canadian pound, queen on the telly. 
we had Boxing Day. It was great, great sales on Boxing Day, by the way. And so when I travel to whether it's Mexico or Ireland and that's or just another state, like I went to Hawaii and one of the first things mm -hmm. I said, I went for business and I sat down with my colleagues and I said, what's your word for gringo? And they looked at me and I said, I know you have huh. one. What's your word for gringo? So I know if I hear it coming at me to mm -hmm. just maybe check myself or, you know, embrace it. And that's what I was introduced to, Howley. And so I think that's also important. But language and culture are really special. And, and it's something to really be embraced and, and encouraged and to be open to because you're only enriching your own life. Absolutely. And uh, in a sense, I feel very grateful that I have been exposed to as many languages as I have because, um, you know, it turns out that even though, for example, my Czech has really deteriorated, it's still there. Mm -hmm. And I can bring it to the surface with some effort. So I now do my best to travel as regularly as I can uh, back to the Czech Republic. And in between those visits, I listen to podcasts. I try to read as much as I'm able to as a way of keeping that doorway open. And it's, um, it is a very widening and enriching experience. Uh, for me, it's an experience that comes with a sense of some familiarity and novelty wrapped together. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like home, but a little alien. So it's, it's a very interesting feeling. Yeah. And what advice would you have for people who are trying to reclaim or sustain a heritage language? So essentially, it is a commitment. And your languages really kind of come and go in strength, depending on how frequently you use them. So don't be discouraged if you feel that you've lost a language. You probably haven't lost it but it's become kind of buried under all of the English or whatever dominant language you've been using most of the time. So the best way to kind of reactivate that is to immerse yourself as much as you can in that language environment where you don't have the option of falling back on your dominant language. That, those kinds of experiences can really go a long way to allowing you to reclaim a language that you think has gotten very weak. That was certainly the case for me. I had the opportunity to spend a couple of months with my family members in the Czech Republic. And uh, at the beginning of that visit, I really struggled to even have a simple conversation. Uh, I misunderstood things all the time. And by the end of that visit, uh, I felt that I could really engage uh, in a much more intimate way than I had been able to do through most of my adult life. So it is a commitment, though. And if you want to sustain a language throughout your life, it's going to take devoting some time to spending as much time as you can in that language. Well, and we're very fortunate today with the internet and with podcasts. That exactly. We have that access exactly. now. So there's almost, I don't want to say there's no excuse, but it's so much easier to put in that work. That's right. Yeah, it's far from being immersed in that environment, but certainly it can allow you to maintain a passive um, command of the language, uh, even if you don't have the opportunity to speak it. Uh, and that by itself just opens all kinds of doors. I mean, being able to listen to podcasts that come from another culture, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, what's going on in that country, mm -hmm. what's shaping the thinking, how people are experiencing the pandemic, you know, what they think about their various social restrictions that are going on. So yeah, absolutely. We, we live in an age where it's easier to be multilingual than it ever has been. Yes. And I'm going to make much more of an effort. I just have to pick a language and just decide to good, commit. Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. So now that we have the technology that supports it, I think the you know the next thing to address is the social attitudes. Mm -hmm. 
that would support multilingualism and really help people who have the capacity in other languages to not feel inhibited from using them in as many contexts as they can, because really that's the only way that you can maintain your competence in, in a variety of different domains. Yes. Well, I think we just need... And that doesn't come as quickly as the internet. <laughs> you, know, you can't just invent a shift in social attitudes. I think that happens much more slowly. But I think it's, you know, if nothing else, hopefully from this time, we're learning to be more kind and more open and accepting and understanding, I hope. I certainly hope so, too. I'm not sure that I, I feel as committed to that view as you do, but um, <laughs> let's certainly hope that that will be the case. Well, we're seeing like all the, I mean, and I'm speaking after we had the insurrection here. So, you know, it's, I'm hoping at least from the people I'm experiencing on the internet and those that I'm meeting in person, well, not in person, virtually anyway, that we are a bit more committed to change and being more open and being more accountable and being more accepting. We know that there needs to be a change and there needs to be a, a change on multiple levels in our lives. And one of the simpler things to do is to be kind and accepting and open to other people and their cultures and their languages. And also, if you only have one language, maybe figuring out another one you want to pick up on. So you have yeah, that experience. Yeah, so it's interesting. And in, in my view, the way that we're going to get there is in part by acknowledging that language is uh, a really loaded thing for many people. So, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to note how in the U.S. there's um, a quite, there has been over the last few decades quite a strong English-only movement mm -hmm. and a push towards keeping other languages at bay, um, you know, among some segments of the population, even though... Like, if we look at the state of English in the U.S. right now, there is no way that English is objectively threatened. And yet, people have the subjective feeling sometimes that it is. And I think um, it's important that we actually recognize that that's not an abnormal human response. Mm -hmm. Throughout human history, language has been a way of identifying who is from your group, who's from your tribe. Right? That's been the most reliable way. And people who didn't speak your language or who spoke it with an accent, you immediately knew these are not people who were raised among my kind. Mm -hmm. And some researchers think that we've kind of developed an evolutionary bias to see language as kind of the dividing line between us and somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that people feel that way and that when they feel, when they hear another language like Spanish being spoken very frequently in their environment, they have the sense that we're becoming overwhelmed. I think that the, probably the best way to dilute some of these feelings of threat is to uh, really make visible the idea that you can be bilingual and bicultural. Mm -hmm. So that knowing one language doesn't negate knowing another language. Right. And to have many role models out there that, um, you know, really make it clear that I feel like I can be myself, I can be Czech, and I can also mm -hmm. be, in my case, Canadian and American, because I hold American <laughs> citizenship as well as Canadian citizenship, uh, and that I don't see that these are inherently in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we are able to interact with people who have these complicated, blended identities, the less threatening 
it begins to feel when we hear someone speak another language. Yes. So I think that's going to be part of the shift that we need to undergo. And it's not surprising to me then that the greatest sense of threat comes from people who probably have limited experience with multicultural and multilingual people, people who have really incorporated into themselves these complicated identities. Yes. Americans are very under-traveled. And I've explained that to friends from Europe or even Australia. We're a, a big country. You know, we can get a cultural difference by changing zip codes, let alone yes. different states. Yes. We don't even yes. travel through our own country. You know, it's it's just we have 50 different cultures, really, in yeah. our own country. Well, probably more than that because yeah. within oh, states absolutely. there are regional differences. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When I lived in Rhode Island, there were many people who would take their summer vacation. Um, we lived in Providence, and they would drive half an hour down the highway to this beach community where they rented a cottage and they'd been doing that. And if I said, huh, didn't you ever get the urge to travel somewhere else? You know, one person once said to me, why? What's out there? (laughs) Well. (laughs) Exactly. There's only one way to find out. Yes. And, you know, when you're in England or Europe, you you have so many different countries and cultures and languages just Mm -hmm. a short flight away. And you have that opportunity to experience it more. We really don't. And we don't take advantage of it. And when I went to Dublin, you know, they asked me how long I was there for. And I said five days. And they looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, you have no idea to have like a week off. Big deal. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm making the most of it. And, you know, we are just short on time, short on, I'll say short on money. And mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. we're exhausted. So making that effort to get to mm-hmm. another country, to experience another culture, we just figure it's all here. Right? Or I can go to Disneyland and see it all there, and it's a small world. I don't know. We need to open up more. And if we're mm-hmm. not going to be able to leave to go do it, well, open up your mind from your laptop or wherever else you can, mm-hmm. or with a neighbor or new friends. Just right, right. connect. Yeah. Yeah, so you make a really interesting point that there's enough novelty and, and difference within the U.S. that maybe that um, softens some of the urge to travel. But that's increasingly the case with other languages too, mm-hmm. right? So um, the U.S. doesn't have quite the same immigration rate as Canada, but it's still quite high and higher than most European countries. So in many American cities, you do have a wealth of languages and cultures and mm-hmm. cuisines and traditions coming in. And this is a resource that, you know, in our travel uh, wary times, you know, really could be used to better advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could have ways of experiencing other cultures much more locally. And I think that's part of uh, what I'm hoping we'll see in coming decades in terms of social shifts, the idea that Uh, There's value in preserving your heritage, language, and culture, that that can live alongside your identity as an English-speaking American. But then if we maintain some continuity over generations of that, then we have these resources within our cities. We can have poetry readings in Arabic to go to or uh, music that comes from other languages and cultures that everybody can enjoy 
without having to get on a plane and sit next to a bunch of strangers who might be exuding dangerous particles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been it a great a conversation. Thanks thank so you very much. much, Sandra. Absolutely. And you can find Julie on her website, juliesedivy.com. And her last name is spelled S-E-D-I-V-Y. And her upcoming book again is Memory Speaks on Losing and Reclaiming Language and Self, which will be released this fall. So be on the lookout for that. And get to know our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group at rootedpg.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this sassy little podcast, please rate it and review it and tell your friends about it. To get the podcast early, ad-free, and with exclusive content, be a patron on Patreon or get a subscription with Apple Podcasts. Go to the community page at sassylittlepodcast.com for more information. And let's connect. Find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at sassylittlepod or email me from the About page on the website. Until next time, take care.